everybody's seeing what's happened with your iPhone. Everybody's seeing what's happened with this Gen AI and chat GPT. Like intrinsically, we all go, yeah, we should be able to get better outcomes. Like, how do we do that? How do we move faster on these really needy problems of society? That is like core to America's innovation ethos of trying to deliver better and improve. So I, I agree. This is All Quiet on the Second Front. Podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. We're leveling up our guests here a little bit and uh, going to our cloud overlords for uh, for some Nick Miller from AWS today. So, Nick, thanks for making some time to join us, brother. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Heck yeah. I've had the benefit of knowing you for for quite some time now. I consider you a close friend and a uh, someone I admire a lot professionally. I don't know if all of our listeners have sort of had the the benefit of getting the the Nick experience or the Nick story. So, give us a little bit about yourself. What are you doing now? What are you working on? And sort of what are you excited about going forward? Yeah. So, uh, Nick Miller, I, I currently lead the AWS Marketplace business for our U.S. federal government, healthcare, not for profits, and really our system integrator community. Kind of my story and my journey, uh, joined uh, the Army out of ROTC out of Lehigh University and spent 10 years in emerging tech. It's hard to look back about that, but every experience I had from the Army, I was in a unit that got early access to technology, whether this was at the 11th Signal Brigade in Fort Huachuca right after they came back from Iraq or even in Afghanistan. And then my last assignment in the Army, I, I was thrown into the midst of a scandal uh, where I was asked to kind of lead digital transformation at Arlington Cemetery, who had paper records. From there, I was fortunate. Uh, you know, there's a lot about transitioning out of the military, the complications, and there's huge programs now that kind of help veterans transition really well into commercial technologies. But I was fortunate to find a role at Incutel. I uh, spent six years in Incutel. They're the venture capital for the uh, U.S. intelligence community, but really they're a strategic investor helping apply early stage commercial technologies to the hardest. Uh, defense and intelligence community problems in a very structured way. And been at AWS now for four years, have helped build the vision that we can buy commercial smarter by kind of streamlining how you buy commercial and streamlining how you think about it, and have kind of built that motion and help see the business grow and the team grow. So it's been awesome. I have loved partnering with Second Front. Awesome vision on that side. And I think very much complements uh, what we're trying to do with AWS Marketplace. Yeah, I will say I think you've got kindred spirits between both uh, Army backgrounds and Patriot League. Uh, so there's just just some goodness all the way back. Um, yeah, you know, my, my dad's a West Pointer, too. I, I'd be remiss to say, I, you know, I noticed the uh, the poem and, and for about uh, 20 years of my life that hung in my house. And so I'm the only one who didn't get to go to that side of the Patriot League. But, you know, uh, I think we ended in the same place. No, it's uh, it wouldn't wouldn't be hanging on the wall unless my wife wasn't opinionated on the need for me to prove to folks that I one was accepted to college and two was considered a perpetrator, you know, ready to graduate. Um, it's awesome. So, want to open with we talk a lot across the community about sort of like innovation and buying commercial and 
non-traditional, different pathways. And there's just, it's almost information overload, right? So if you're coming in kind of from the outside and trying to really wrap your head around it, you know, what would you say to that, that maybe, maybe that new venture capitalist who's maybe coming in on a defend, new defense thesis or that, you know, non-defense sort of commercial ISV that's looking at it and saying, hey, this looks interesting. You know, how should I think about it? Where do they go to get smart? What are the two or three things that you kind of start them with? And then we'll lead that into the bigger conversation on sort of like Nick's philosophy on what this should look like at scale. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, right? So maybe if I just start with a story, I was a lieutenant in Iraq and I sat on this board and this board looked at all of the purchases that needed to be bought for the war to make IT work in theater. And undoubtedly, week after week, everything that came through the board was commercial items. And you see a lot of that right now with the war in Ukraine, right, where commercial items have really helped drive forward. And so um, as I think about new ISVs going to market, I start with how do you align with kind of the hyperscalers in this commercial co-selling motion that's being promulgated, right? Even in industry, if I look at my regulated customers, healthcare, financial, um, even some of the largest nonprofits, they have very rigid procurement processes. And what you get when you talk to AWS, you have people aligned to understand how they buy. And that really helps kind of shorten the procurement cycle. Not to mention they have some financial incentives to reduce total cost of ownership of cloud, which makes the procurement cycle you know, even more malleable. So I think step one would be really look at your alignment with the hyperscalers, particularly, you know, I love what we're doing at AWS to really think about how do you build your go-to-market strategy. Um, there was even a recent Harvard Business article story that talked about how cloud marketplaces at places like Snowflake and AWS are helping drive innovation in the Department of Defense. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's great advice. Trying to find ways to a reduce friction out of procurement and b sort of you know you want to decrease that TCO for for your end customer. You know that, that sort of ISV or that again I'll put that put that same thing right. Somebody maybe maybe new into the market or sort of coming up and in. You know they look across the table and they say, oh, it's it's an eight thousand pound gorilla. AWS or Snowflake or like pick your hyperscaler, pick your, pick your sort of large. How should they think about building a partnership strategy or, you know, when do they engage? Like at what point does it start to make sense? Because I'll juxtapose that with probably the most valuable asset that early stage company has is like a dollar and a minute. And so how do they maximize the respect, respective ROE or ROI out of each of those? What's your guidance there? Yeah, it's tough, right? I mean, if I look at the, the partner networks, right, like they are built to help accelerate our customers' route to market, right? And so I see early and earlier stage companies aligning to these hyperscalers because there's great alignment, right? The entire partner community ethos is how do we help you go to market and scale faster? Because if you do, and if you're successful, the cloud will be successful and you'll help your customers adopt faster. We, we talk very much about how partners accelerate our customers end journey to the cloud. And so that ethos, I think, aligns to kind of the thinking of how do you partner? It used to be as, as I was just joining AWS, there was a decision point about when in the company's journey do you list in AWS marketplace or any cloud software marketplace? And what I'm seeing now is 
it's almost like an immediate thing is present that optionality so that your field sellers out in industry can say, yes, we are able to sell through AW, the marketplace, right? We are able to do that because if your customer wants to buy that way, it's a no brainer to meet them where they're at. Yeah. And I think that last point is an important one is sort of understanding how does sort of your customer buy? What barriers are from the buy side, like what barriers exist and how can you help reduce those barriers? Because I think often we think about it from the sell side, right? Like, how can I just make it easier to procure this? And you're like, well, I've got this and this and this and this. And like in your head, or maybe to you, it makes a ton of sense. But to that customer, they're not able to, to sort of reap the benefits. Folks wrap their head more around because you say, hey, go learn about DOD procurement. And they're like, all right, great. Like, what am I getting? 5,000? That's what? Like, it's just a lot of words that to the normal person don't mean anything. So where does somebody go to get smart on like what does right DOD or the Intel community or the U.S. government sort of buying commercial software? What does that mean in a practical sense? Yeah, I mean, so I think if you step way back, right, part of the challenge is that, you know, in order to learn how does it how do you sell into DOD? How do you sell into the national security community? There is twenty eight hundred pages of FAR and probably another five thousand pages of DFAR, right? And so it becomes unwieldy to really think about. But if you look at the strategic lens that's being coming down from the highest levels of the department and from the highest levels of Congress, they're really pushing the government to buy commercial first, right? And it's actually mandated to buy commercial first. It's even mandated to modify the requirements before doing custom development, right? And so I think that framework is very good. What I like to think about is how do we help you templatize that innovation playbook, that procurement playbook, right? How do we help you think about simplifying what is the 2,800 pages of FAR to the six or seven relevant pages in a framework contract to really make it go fast? Um, the other thing I would say is we have great partners across industry in the VAR community and the distribution community who do this for a living, right? And so while there's always a natural inclination to kind of start with direct sales in commercial industry, I think in federal particularly, you need channel. You, you scale through channel and they will help de-risk it. And we look like a player in that channel ecosystem. So I think going to the established players in the VAR and distribution community to help simplify that direct sales motion and really lay it out is going to help. At the end of the day, you want to give your customers as many options as possible and meet them where their spend is. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you talk about sort of channel in Fed versus commercial, and that being, a, I think one of the one of the probably like most observ most easily observable differences. You know, at Second Front, I think one of the one of the best hiring decisions we've ever made is you know bringing in Mamie Cruz, who is our vice president of partnerships and alliances, who has brought such a sort of air of professionalism and structure to how we think about channels how we think about sort of buy with and through and where we're engaging different partners. If you told me five years ago, hey, like the way you're going to be scaling a software company is going to be like partner-driven channel. I'd be like, whatever, like you're crazy. You know, give me reps. I'll give them a bag. They'll be great. And now I find myself like very much thinking of like, as we're looking and we're getting ready to like go into our annual planning process now. And so we're doing zero base, doing all the headcount builds. And we're having like great conversations around like, 
hey, all right, like, do I actually go grab a, like a PDM or a channel person or do I need a rep? And I don't think, I don't think younger Tyler, maybe with less sort of, you know, laps around the track under his belt would have thought about it that way. And yeah, I think the power of the channel, and again, it's not something, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, right? It's not something to just sort of say, hey, okay, like we're in X marketplace or Y program. And then like the spigot of deals turn on. It's same thing with the distribution partner, right? It's not, hey, I've like signed a distro agreement. Okay, cool. You know, it's the Mitch and Murray throwing leads at you. How do you see those companies that do it well? What are those attributes? What are those differentiating factors? Because there is a subset that really set themselves apart. How should that, that founder, that operating team think about that as they're looking at channel strategy? Yeah, I mean, look, not, younger Nick also would have said direct seller with bag, right? So, so <laughs> I mean, like I, I have drank at the altar of channel in this role. But if you if you step way back and you look at all of the megas, they're channel heavy now, right? If you look at every mega in company, the way they go to market is through channel. Why? In the commercial world, getting down market to mid market and SMB is really really hard, and you need those established relationships. And what is channel ultimately giving you? It's a way to tr trade direct operating expense for upside. So you shift that operating expense to somebody else and only pay that other person when they land what is valuable to you, which is revenue, right? That's a risk reduction cost. In the federal government, which is probably the riskiest market to sell into, channel then is that risk reduction cost for commercial companies who want to go to market. Will it always be that way? I don't know. If the government starts buying more and more like commercial, maybe there'll be up more optionality. That'll be good. But I think for now, it's, it's really got to be fundamental. How much can we afford to invest in direct sales? And what if we get it wrong versus channel sales, which reduces our cost of risk? How are you seeing folks, you know, engage with, you know, the hyperscalers in a way that, because the other side of it too, and this is, again, like, I'll go back and say five years ago, you know, younger Tyler probably wouldn't have had such a stark appreciation for this. Is as you're looking through channels, there are different incentives that you need to account for, right? And pick like your hyperscaler or your marketplace you're going through. There are different programs that if you're coming in through a certain program, maybe a rep that's co-selling with you gets a spiff or it counts towards a bag that they've got. And I found that folks who are working in those channels, whether they're a PDM sort of on the sell side or the channel side, able to identify and orient around, you're then able to incent a bunch of folks to participate and all win and share in the success. How, how are you seeing, you know, are folks doing that enough? Are folks maybe making a mistake and coming in and just saying, hey, you know, I'm in the marketplace, make it go burr? Or are they taking the time to sort of understand, hey, how does this system work? And then conversely, are you guys, you know, the hyperscalers, do you think you're doing a good enough job sort of informing that early stage ISV on like, hey, here's everything that's at your sort of at your fingertips and doing it in a way that's that's a little consumable? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the beauty I have is I have kind of the federal market in what is a much broader global marketplace doing billions of dollars. Right. And so yeah. what I think is really important is you're right. Like goal setting with channel is super important and mutual goals aligned to shared interest is super important. Right. 
what I am trying to say is federal just becomes an additional goal or public sector just becomes an additional goal as part of a broader goal setting. And guess what we've done? We've yeah. worked with the buyer to buy down the risk to make federal, to make public sector look more like a commercial sales. So all of that investment you've done in the commercial market, go to market, just kind of naturally translates with a little more language around procurement. But the good news is the sales reps you're going to hire, they know this. They've been in the game for 20 plus years. So it's just a little bit of bending on their part to really think through, oh, here's how you drive and accelerate deals through the funnel. But at the end of the day, like if I step way back, it's less about channel and deals. And it's more about getting soldiers, getting sailors, getting national security people, the best technology available today to meet the mission rather than what has habitually been yesterday's technology tomorrow at perhaps a higher price. And that flip of that paradigm is so important. It's the mission, right? And I think that's something you and I often talk about is the, I think the cool, I'll say for me, right? Like gone full circle, right? Like was, was Lieutenant on ground running around Eastern Afghanistan with probably like a well-intentioned kit, just none of it freaking worked. Um, by everyone's whole, heard me tell the story, right? like my best piece of comms gear was an Afghan Roshan cell phone, yep. right? It was the only thing that I knew was going to work. To flip now to where, you know, I'm able to sort of shape a company that is delivering like mission critical effects down, right? Like that's awesome. I think if you'd asked Tyler 20 years ago, sitting in Tora Bora, like, hey, you're going to be doing software for, you know, the next generation? Absolutely not. Like, this software doesn't work. So there's an aspect of mission in it, which is, which is killer. I think too, the nice part about that I've seen, at least in sort of this broader national security tech ecosystem is it's not only folks who serve, right? It's this great sort of melting pot and it, it highlights some of the best things about America. And it's this cultural sort of melting pot of folks that have come, maybe they've cut their teeth of a full career in national security. Maybe they had family, maybe they had none. And that different experiential, the different perspectives, the different approaches all sort of get unified by our desire to go make a difference and make an impact. And to me, it, it really does showcase like the best parts of, of what America is and is supposed to be. I couldn't agree more. Like, I mean, first, I, I remember running around in host in the, the Afghanistan getting calls from, you know, company commanders on ground saying my comms are down. And, and why? Well, there were comms, we bought commercials, there was no training, there was none of that. And so they called me on that HF radio, which is probably the hardest link to get in, but for some reason it was in and saying, I need the PowerPoint to go out tomorrow so I can educate my troops, right? Um, so yeah, full circle coming back now, but I think you're right. Like, There's a huge groundswell at going after the best in America. Like, I think intrinsically, we all feel like we're spending a lot of money on things like solving cancer or national security or protecting the water for America's children and like, can we get better outcomes? And I think technology really, like everybody's seeing what's happened with your iPhone, everybody's seeing what's happened with this Gen AI and chat GPT. Like intrinsically, we all go, yeah, we should be able to get better outcomes. Like, how do we do that? How do we move faster on these really needy problems of society? That is like core to America's innovation ethos of, you know, trying to deliver better and improve. So I, I agree with you. I think, I think you're spot on that there's a groundswell of people both in and out of the military community that are really leading into these needy problems that are both national security, but not national security related using technology to drive better outcomes. Yeah. It's uh, 
it's a pretty neat time right now with sort of everything going on in the world, sort of the, the groundswell around broader sort of public sector technology, sort of changing landscape in private capital, which leads me to sort of the, the last structured question here, right? You know, so we talked through, we talked through everything from sort of like the mission and the culture of the community to, you know, buying commercial and sort of defense procurement to like sales channels and partners and all of that. You know, Nick Miller gets the, uh, gets the Harry Potter wand or gets the, gets the crown and is sort of yeah. like king, king for a day. Yeah. What's the one thing you change and why? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a meaty question, right? I think as it relates to software, I think if we could raise the micro purchase threshold to something more material, like $250,000, really raise the micro purchase threshold for commercial items. It's going to allow that land and expand velocity that commercial items see in the in the commercial landscape. Right now, the simplified acquisition threshold has been raised to seven and a half million dollars, but they're angst about using that authority because it it feels different, right? And so I think we even have to take it down a level to really like 250k for a startup company going to market in the defense firm. Great deal, great land opportunity. Allows you to leverage partnerships and really start to assess: Does this thing meet my mission? But right now, because that's capped at 10K, I feel like that space between 10K and seven and a half million, we're just not able to use it quite enough. Oh, that's good. That's a great answer. I think it's, I think it's making it easier sometimes for, for the government to use the authorities they already have, maybe making it more accessible. That's a great answer. Yeah. I mean, look, I came from a position where like I was representing 70 of the world's best startup companies. And it felt Herculean every time just to get them from an R&D project to some type of follow-on contract. And that follow-on contract was probably never inside a program of record, right? And so, like, you needed two or three or four years to get into a program of record. And the only way I feel like you could go from that position to program is to give a land in the span type model where you, you really make it easier to get that initial buy post R&D done. Yeah. No, I love that. You and I both know that we could probably spend five hours and, uh, and a good chunk of whiskey sort of ruminating on how to unscrew this whole thing. But uh, I am grateful that there are folks like you out there finding ways to make it easier to buy, make it easier to deliver, and ultimately make it easier for us to accomplish the mission. So thanks for spending a little bit of time together today, brother. Yeah. It's always good to see you. Always good. And uh, this is going to be, I think this is going to be a... Uh, a pretty popular one as we click into a bunch of the procurement stuff. So thanks a bunch. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Yeah. Love, love the partnership with Second Fund. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. <laughs>